When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. This is SOG cast number six. My name is Jay Stryker-Meyer, and I'm joined by Tom the Technician, and welcome to the show. They moved quietly through the darkness. They had planned for months and chosen this day, August 23rd, 1968, and timed carefully. Everything was as their informants had said it would be, and now all that was left was execution. Various elements broke off to their assigned positions. Machine guns in place, satchel charges at the ready. They waited for the signal. Let slip the dogs of war. Private First Class John E. Peters found himself crawling on the floor. He had been blown out of his bed literally by explosions in the camp. Ordinarily, this would not be unusual after a night of heavy drinking, but Peters could hear massive explosions all around the hooch and burst a small arms fire ripping through the darkness. His mind worked frantically. Where exactly was he? And where the hell was his weapon? Private First Class William H. Brick III grabbed his web gear and car 15, shouted some words that did not make sense to Peters and charged out the door to his assigned defensive position. Sappers were unquestionably the elite troops in the NBA. Sappers received six months of concentrated training. Tonight, on this night, August the 23rd, they were fanatically dedicated troops and their missions were often self-destructive. They were the purveyors of unbridled mayhem 
and on this night they struck with sudden fury. The enemy launched an intense barrage of 82nd, 82 mortar meter fire at FOB 4 from somewhere behind ST Rattler. As soon as the situation permitted, Trimble, Larry Trimble, made his way towards the south side of the mountain with several of his known team members. And as we had on a previous broadcast, Larry Trimble was one of our guests and spoke about that night. Today, I want to say we're privileged to have John Peters with us. He survived that night and served in MACVSOC. John, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's a great <laughs> pleasure to be here and to be, just to be, after that night. Indeed. Uh, there were doubts. And for our viewing audience, uh, August 23rd, 1968, the uh, NVA sappers and uh, Viet Cong sappers had planned the attack for over a year. They struck in the early morning hours of August the 23rd and at the top secret base, which was a Mac VSOG base. And they had planned it well, and they had, we had extra personnel in camp that night. There was a promotion board along with the regular uh, men that were stationed there. And then they also had a command and control uh, monthly meeting that had been held on base also. And so, and it was a moonless night. So that was the night. And uh, like you said, with your uh, opening line there, uh, fortunately you had been drinking intoxicated and you couldn't figure out where you were, but in a way that played to your advantage. Indeed it did. It was um, a night to remember, and um, sometimes you don't want to remember those kinds of things, but that was certainly one that's hard to get out of your mind. Um, as you mentioned, it was an incredibly well-planned operation, and in that respect there was something almost admirable about it. I mean, they had their intelligence, and when they came through, they set up almost as if they had planned this to the extent of had a model of our compound and knew exactly where to put the machine guns for the clearest and most effective lines of fire. Um, they knew exactly what they wanted to do and they were there to do it. Um, I have never heard a clear estimation of how many of them there were, but I've heard estimates from four to six hundred and maybe upwards of that, which meant that they outnumbered the people in the compound probably uh, five or six to one. Um, and so certainly caught us by surprise. As you said, some of us were there for a promotion ceremony. I was. And of course, what ceremony of any kind can pass without a few drinks amongst the special forces <laughs> types? And so we did indeed share some drinks. And I went back to the hooch that I was sharing with uh, Bill Brick. Uh, he had been kind enough to offer me that, said I didn't have to stay in the transit barracks because we'd been in a training group together. And so that's how I wound up there. And uh, FOB4 had a reputation of being so safe that n uh, some of us, my, me and certainly, uh, decided it was so safe there was no need for me to bring my car 15, my web gear, and the normal you know things right. with, you know, with grenades and all the stuff we normally carried. I went down with simply a 45 caliber pistol. And uh, Bill told me, he said, well, there's been a rash, not a rash, but he says there's been some pistols stolen. He said, so uh, what I want you to do, 
when you go off is put it in the footlocker here and we'll lock it up and that way nobody will steal it. And I thought, well, that's a brilliant idea. You know, yeah. so I, you know, put, put the 45 <laughs> in there and uh, said, okay, uh, you know, see you later. But as I left, I said, to, you know, he was there at, sitting at a desk with a, a, a lamp on writing. And I said, well, you know, come on, Bill, come on with me and, and let's have a drink. You know, I haven't seen you in a while. He said, no, 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 you go on, you go on. He said, hey, uh, I'm writing a letter to my girlfriend. Wow. Um, and to this day, I've often wondered, you know, what happened to that letter? No kidding. You know, and um, it was, you know, thinking back on it, that was the last moment of me seeing him alive was, you know, sitting there with his head down writing. So I left. And, of course, we had the full night of fun yeah and so let me just go back to that one point in time then, so please that's okay. do yeah yeah sure this is uh, we're going back to the book on the ground and uh as pfc brick dashed out of his hooch to confront the enemy peters still on all fours suddenly recalled where his weapon was it was part wasn't particularly comforting like a number of others peters had traveled to denang just for that reason for the promotion board and his 45 was safely locked up and then Peters found himself in a vulnerable position. Hooches were blowing up around him, and bullets were hitting the one he was in. He needed to join up with other survivors and organize some kind of defense as or a counterattack. He also needed something other than a forty-five if he was going to survive or make any kind of meaningful contribution to the fight. As he surveyed the chaotic scene, he saw a group firing from inside a small sandbag enclosure next to the hooch, diagonally across from him. He couldn't tell for sure how many there were, or who they were, but he assumed they were Americans. Taking no chances, he yelled across to them to let them know where he was and that he was going to try and reach them. They would cover him while he made his sprint. Just a few meters outside was a body with a car 15 and some ammo pouches on the ground next to it. As Peter stood to gather these, he was shocked to see it was Bill Brick lying motionless in the sand. He had been gunned down by the NVA as soon as he rushed outside. Had Peters been able to respond as quickly and as surely as Brick had, he would have been lying next to him. Peters hesitated, but then picked up Brick's weapon and ammo and quietly thanked him. With bullets cracking past him and sand kicking up all around, Peters completed his mad dash to the enclosure. And then um, maybe you could talk a little bit because the, the, there were three rows of hooches in the recon area. Mm-hmm. And in the front of each one, there are sidewalks. Mm-hmm. And the NVA placed machine guns. Mm-hmm. So when men like Bill Brick came out, mm-hmm. those machine guns were waiting for him. Yeah, my understanding is that a lot, um, most of the casualties took place rather immediately just because of that. Now, Bill was assigned to the FOB, so he had a position that he was supposed to go to uh, in a situation like that. So he knew what he needed to do, and he, God bless him, he you know, he didn't hesitate. He grabbed his gear, and he and he rushed out to do his do his duty. Um, and of course, they were waiting for him outside the door. Uh, I was left behind, still trying to figure out how I was going to get my forty-five, and I 
found the foot locker and sure enough it had a lock on it well, big big surprise um and i used a knife to pry the uh, lock open and got my 45 and then i literally low crawled to the door so that i could look out and that's when i kind of surveyed the situation and saw what and was going on you could hear on. bullets ripping through your oh yeah that, that was uh yeah the, you know those those hooches were made out of plywood and so there wasn't a lot of resistance there um, and so, yeah, I mean, I can't, you know, you, you, people talk about the sounds of bullets as they pass you, you know, well, I don't know, but you know, something was flying around and, uh, <laughs> I knew I needed to get out of there and get someplace that would, because what the NVA were doing is they were making their way down the rows of hooches and picking them off kind of one at a time with satchel charges. Uh, the hooches had air conditioning, air conditioners, uh, in in holes in the wall, and then what they were doing was kicking in the air conditioners or pushing them in, and then throwing satchel charges into the hooch or whatever you know, wherever it was, and and you could kind of tell that was what was coming. So we you know you needed to get out of there and get somewhere else, um, and that's what I made my dash. I could see that there was something going on across the way that looked promising, uh, so I you know, I said okay, that's where I guess I got to go next. And, um, yeah, and then I went out, and as, as it says in the book, that's when I found him. Um, I took his weapon and the, the ammo that was there and uh, joined the other fellows who were in this sandbag enclosure, uh, small sandbag enclosure. And uh, that's where I took up my first position for the night. Yeah, so that's the one where the uh, sandbag machine gun emplacement, there was, like, hardly room for the four of them to stand, much less crowds. And this was a problem because the sandbags reached only chest high. In effect, the enclosure offered no meaningful protection because all four of them could not duck down at the same time. However, from the new vantage point, Peters could observe a steady crisscrossing of enemy troops. Some had their bodies wrapped with explosives and many carried satchel charges and baskets of grenades, along with their AK-47s. It was clear they had come prepared for a long night. Like many of those around him, Peters had operated in the chaos of jungle warfare, where unexpected things happened quickly and at close quarters, but he'd never seen a large-scale battle like the one currently raging around him. Peters was brought out of his daze by a sapper, who was running across in front of him, firing his AK-47 as he ran. Peters fired a short burst from Brick's car 15, and the sapper pitched forward to his knees, his forehead resting in the sand like a Muslim in prayer. He never fell over, and for the rest of the night, Peters could see his near-naked body bowed over as if offering a final homage to whatever brought him to this place on that night. In this semi-exposed position, Peters and his group made inviting targets and so drew their share of attention, including periodic volleys of grenades that had to be returned. In a bizarre twist of fate that none of them had anticipated, their protective enclosure began dribbling away around them. At first, they couldn't figure out what was going on, and then it hit them. As more and more rounds hit the sandbags, 
The bags steadily deflated as the sand ran out. Time to find new cover. Oh, my God, John. Yeah, that reads almost like a Woody Allen movie. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, yeah, we, there we were and, um, and thought we were okay. Well, not okay, but I mean, we thought, well, this is about the best we can do. It seems pretty secure. Um, we did have the problem of people throwing grenades at us, and, you know, we had to do something about that. So we generally picked them up and threw them back, uh, or caught them and threw them back. Um, but, you know, as, as you looked out, it was like somebody had kicked over a, a rock or something, and cockroaches were scurrying around because... The light was provided by overhead flares, which are very uh, provide a very unusual kind of light that lacks depth perception and has a certain quality to it, especially over sand. It was a very, very eerie-looking thing, and you could see these black forms scurrying back and forth in all kinds of directions, and you really couldn't tell who, you know, except the ones that were, well, even the ones that didn't have much clothes on, you weren't sure whether those were your own people who had been come out of bed, right, not fully dressed. Or, or distance truth who responded. That's right. And, and of course, we had our indigenous personnel there who many of them looked very much like the enemy. And so, you know, there was a massive problem in just trying to sort out, well, who's who and what am I supposed to do? Um, but anyway, we, yeah, there we were in the sandbags, and um, everything was going as it was going. And then we noticed that, the, you know, I'm, like I said, short, you know, and, um, you know, suddenly the sandbag was lower and lower on my body, and I <laughs> was trying to figure out, you know, what in the world is going on here. And then it dawned on us that, you know, what was happening was we were taking so much fire that the sandbags were, you know, were giving out on us. And so, yeah. Um, yeah, we then said, okay, well, let's get out of here and let's go somewhere else. And so we, we more or less went in different directions because uh, you didn't want to clump together. As, yeah. You know, because so in a very short period of time, it goes from a quiet night, Yeah. you're asleep, Yeah. and just begin to sleep off a little too much alcohol, Right. and it just goes to this apocalyptic death scene Yes. with so much going on, with enemy running around, and then the additional specter of not being able to delineate clearly enemy from our allies, our South Vietnamese, yeah. or even the yards that were there because they're the same stature. Yeah. And some of the guys, like, like I don't know how much clothing you had on when you left the hooch, but some guys just ran out with their shorts on. Absolutely. Without shoes, there were people going around. Yeah, and to this day, it's a terrible thing to have to try to contemplate, and I, you know, I haven't for any depth because I don't know the answer. But there had to have been some friendly fire casualties that night. Oh, there sure. had to there had to have been in all that confusion some of our own troops, you know, killed by mistake, and that's that's terribly sad. But as far as I could tell, there was absolutely no way around it in a situation like that. I mean, it's really hard to describe the level of chaos, um, you know. And 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 as as the book said, you know, we were used to being out in the jungle where you could see how far in front of you, ten, fifteen feet or something, and if if a, if you got into trouble, you know, you often couldn't see clearly who it was that was shooting at you. I mean, right. you know, you you returned fire to where you it sounded like it was coming from or wherever you thought you ought to be shooting. Um, but this was absolutely unique because it was a flat beach type thing, white sand, illuminated by flares. And you could see in great detail uh, the chaos, uh, the mayhem, the death. And then the flares would come and go, so you wouldn't have a yeah. constant light. You'd have a light that would be surreal. It would go out, and then a new flare would come up with a different angle with a different look. Yeah. And you had like to reassess where you were again in terms of enemy, good guys, and whatever. 
Yeah, and the and the, the the illumination flares are just that flares, and they're they're hung underneath the parachute, and of course as they come down, they start swaying back and forth. And so, you know, it's like if you're in a room with a suspended light bulb and somebody hits the light bulb and it starts swinging back and forth and, you know, your shadow is shifting position constantly and everybody else's shadows are shifting position constantly and they're shifting position constantly physically. And so, I mean, the very idea of trying to take aim and shoot at somebody was very problematic because... Were you shooting at the shadow? Were you shooting at them? Were you shooting where the shadow was and isn't anymore? I this, mean, these would, are paper targets. These no, are no, moving no, no. targets. These are moving targets and shifting shadows and all of that kind of stuff and lots of noise, smells. Um, you know, it was, um, like I said, it was pretty chaotic. And, uh, you know, um, yeah. So you moved from the sandbags to a more secure position then? Yeah, we, 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 you more or less, yeah, you more or less fought your way that way. I guess you know they were shooting along the way. Oh yeah, and um, you know you tried to you tried to estimate. You find yourself in a in a well an interesting position because <laughs> you know being human you wanted to save your own self, but then being part of a group, part of a team, you wanted to contribute your you know your bit. And so you're, you know, you'd find a place that looked like, well, that would be, yeah, that's a good place to hide. But then you really didn't want to hide. You know, you wanted to be some in some situation where you can contribute. So it was a, it was a, the rest of the night was a, a constant moving around. You know, you would be in one place for a while, and then, you know, you'd think, well, maybe I got to, ought to go over there and see what's happening. Um, you know. Yeah. So for a lot more details are in the book about that. But in your case, one of the other aspects was sunlight finally came up and then you also had a final encounter with a couple of enemy correct correct yeah that was i believe they were they were said to be the last enemy killed that uh, throughout the event it was early the following morning the sun hadn't been up that, that long and i joined a group of people well and when i started i think there were only two of us and we were doing kind of like a sweep through the camp if you will to try to see if we could find any you know remaining NVA and the camper enemy. And as we were walking along, um, suddenly these two guys came, you know, um, bursting out of some rubble. Um, and it didn't take long to see that they were... This is in the recon company area? Yeah, that they were... No, this was uh, further down, uh, further down, uh, away from it. Uh, okay. West of it. Right. Um, and um, they were making this mad dash, and it was, you know, it became very clear that they were enemy because they were dressed in their loincloths and had their, you know, what they had. And anyway, they ran into an outhouse that was there, you know, a latrine, well, a lot right. of, an outhouse, but a latrine. Made out of plywood, usually a two-seater or a three-seater. No, this was, this was a deluxe model. With oh, probably, a deluxe model? Yeah, it had six okay. seats. It was quite large. I think I had six, I never counted them, but I think there were six seats and more in there. <laughs> I didn't, I, you know. State I, of the fart. Yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't. <laughs> I wasn't assigned to that, so I would, did not have this intimate acquaintance with the latrines. That's right, you were a I, visitor. Yeah, okay. that, I, that I should have had, perhaps. But anyway, they both disappear into the um, into the latrine, we'll call it. And um, so, I mean, what's a man to do? So I just opened up, you know, and fired a full clip into the into the cardboard structure. I mean, the cardboard, the plywood structure. And the guy that was with me also fired some shots. And you know, it doesn't take long to empty a, a you know magazine of 
Yeah, car 15, yeah, a second and a half. Yeah, you, you rip through that pretty quickly. Yes. So there really wasn't much time that elapsed between the last shot, and suddenly the entire thing exploded. The, the, the latrine. The latrine did. They set off the explosives that were wrapped around their bodies. And I, this is an image that I, that I, you know, whenever I think of it, I see the exact same thing. And it was like, and I'm sure everybody's see it in, seen it in action movies, when something blows up and a character or a person comes kind of in slow motion flying out of it. Flying through the air without yeah. the greatest of ease. Yeah, flying through the And that's exactly what it was. This body came flying wow. out of, the, of what was the latrine and sailed and landed about, I don't know, five or six feet in front of me. And, you know, it was then that I could see that, well, there wasn't much of a person left there. I mean, you know, they'd, they'd had explosive wrapped around him. So, you know, what finally landed on the ground in front of me was not, you know, recognizable as a human being. More, you know, not really. Um, but anyway, yeah, that, I've always, that, that is an image that is we'll hard, stick. hard to get out of your mind. Yeah. And so then we moved on and other people joined us uh, and we, the group, and we did the sweep and, um, verified that there was nobody else you know left trying to kill us and went about then trying to put order back into the chaos you know indeed getting you know, pick up the bodies yeah that was the worst of it yeah oh. because they were everywhere and um and and i don't know what kind of a thing it is to say but i was lucky in the sense that i wasn't from there so I didn't recognize, aside from Bill Brick, I didn't recognize any of the dead. Yeah, because you and Bill had been made contact previously. We were in... in uh, training group? Training group together. Okay. And I had, and so, so you know, there was, there was a, I could maintain an emotional distance, if you will, from what I was seeing and what was going on. But certainly some of the people who were with me, you know, it's very, very difficult to, to do that. Oh, yeah, I can't uh, imagine. And... And while you're doing it, there's running through your mind, why them and not me? I mean, the most remarkable thing to come out of that kind of experience, I think, and I think we touch on it a lot in the book, and that is the extent to which just pure blind luck, you know, is accountable for so much. I mean, you can have all the, all the training in the world, you can be the baddest dude on the block, right? you know, and if things don't break just right, you know, that's it. And, you know, there's no, I mean, I don't know. I mean, that's, you know, I certainly didn't deserve to live that night any more than a lot of other people deserved it. Many people probably deserved more. But, um, yeah. Yeah, and, and like that contrast between what happened to Bill Brick. Yeah. He's reporting the duty where he's, got, where he's told to go. He's gunned down immediately yeah. upon leaving the, the team hooch. And then compared to... The other side, a few doors down, where John Walton and Ron Podolaski were in their hooch, and they were putting on their boots. Yeah. And then an NVA came by to throw a satchel charge into the hooch. But that was the one, and I remember that door, because yeah. <laughs> it was strongly strung. Yeah. So that when they opened it, the spring closed the door quickly, so quickly that the NVA throwing a satchel charge in didn't get it inside. Yeah. It hit the door lands blows up the staircase yeah there will stair three or four stairs leading yeah. into the hooch and then when john and ron come out they literally fall over each other because right. there's no steps yeah my wife described that kind of door for me it, in the south it's going as a bam and scream door bamming <laughs> screen door and in every country home used to have them and you know your mother was constantly screaming at you don't slam the door you know because the kid would 
push it open and keep going and the door would slam behind them. Well, this one had, the spring was so tight that when the, as I picture it, because I wasn't there, but the NVA yanked it open and thought he was going to, you know, follow up and throw the satchel charge through the open screen door and the screen door closed so fast that the uh, satchel charge bounced off of it and blew up right outside their hooch and that took out the steps and so yeah when they finally got their boot problems straightened out um and that was kind of funny i mean two you know one guy's waiting for the other one to put on his boots yes yeah. he's, he's got <laughs> one of them's got one boot on and can't figure out what to do with the other boot allegedly he goes through <laughs> a thought process as well should i take off the boot i have on or should I put on the boot that I don't have on? Or should I take both boots? You know, I mean, it was one of these decision trees that he was running through. And meanwhile, John Walton's waiting. You know, come, come on, come on. And so when they, finally, when they finally get the boots on, he gets the boots on and they go out the door. You know, it's like, again, it's like a, 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 one of those Roadrunner cartoons or something. They step out of the hooch expecting that they're going to step onto a step that was there. Yeah, and it's not there anymore, and it's so you know they just we've all had that sinking feeling where you step at a place where you think there's going to be support and there is none, and so they both fell to the ground, and the, and NVI NBA was out there and he was immediately shot, but because he shot where he thought they were going to be, and of course they were where you know nobody was where they thought they were going to be. Yeah, you know, and that <laughs> saved their life. I mean, you know, there they were on the sand, you know, and. Uh, uh, I, th- I believe uh, uh, one of the indigenous people or something like that came along at just the opportune moment because, you know, the guys on the sand were in no position to take out the right. the guy and somebody came along and, and did it for them and so they could rally themselves and, and move on. And again, on there's, that, on. there's that, that second by minute second by second moment yeah. Had the other indigs not come along and right. taken out that gunner who yeah. was killing anybody coming out of the hooches. Yeah. All that matter of seconds. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Less than, I mean, yeah, it's just microseconds. Microseconds, indeed. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's. Well, again, there's a lot more of that story that's in the book. And that uh, I'm proud to say that we co authored. And, uh, um, but one of the other amazing stories is. One of my favorites from chapter 15, entitled One Lucky Day, where you, sir, yeah. <laughs> could have been dead at least three times without trying too hard, and nary a shot was fired Correct. by the enemy. Correct. And uh, I just want to set the scene a little bit, because one of our missions was the eldest son, where we had taken ammunition to an enemy site and drop it off, then the enemy pick it up and blow himself up. That was the plan. And it was, you were on one of these eldest son missions. This is, oh, and we should close with the FOB4 attack. The final body count, we lost 16 Green Berets that night on in the morning of August the 23rd, which to this day is still the highest single loss of Green Berets in SF history, mm. tragically. And uh, dozens of indigenous people were killed. And then the... We're still working on a final number for the number of NVA that were killed. Of course, some um, were carried off, as mm-hmm. they often are, mm-hmm. by their by their counterparts. Yeah, there, there was actually, you bring that up, there were surprisingly few uh, enemy bodies left. And, I, you know, there were blood trails leading out of the compound where obviously some that had been wounded had, had, had retreated to wherever they came from. 
and then some had been dragged away. But I mean, I don't think there's any doubt that the, the body count for them must have numbered in the hundreds. I mean, it, there was no way because with Spooky there working out with the gunship that came in and was firing with all the rest of the stuff that was going on. Yeah, they they had to have suffered heavy casualties. Yeah, because one of the gunships came in right when the NVA sappers were attempting, because right next door to FOB4 was an NVA POW yeah. encampment, which had over a 1,000 enemy soldiers right. imprisoned. Yeah. And they were trying to get through to them, and fortunately the gunship got there, and somebody was able to direct enough fire yeah, that they weren't able because if that if those thousand enemy troops had been sprung loose, well, the 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 I've heard that that was one of their major objectives, that they wanted to free the thousand who would then join up with them, and then there would be a sweep further inland. I mean, this was all during the Tet offensive. This was a this was part of Tet. Um, most people think of Tet as just one battle, but it was a year long series of battles. Uh, that were more or less worked its way north to south, and this was part of that activity. I'm quite sure, and so they, yeah, they, they had big plans for that night. Um, and I was about to say it. I mean, if anybody asked me how did how did you win, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, sun sunrise came and it seemed to be over, you know, and and given the odds and given the fact that it, that we had nothing resembling an organized response i mean it was really literally pick a number you know a dozen two dozen five dozen individual firefights going on in this compound you know and you could kind of it was kind of like it wasn't invitation only but you could go around and join in you know, as I moved along, I mean, I joined in and some firefights that were ongoing. I mean, okay, yeah. you come across one, join in, you know, and then keep moving. You know, and it was bizarre. I mean, you know. and you just can't uh, imagine. Yeah, and stuff was blowing up because the, the supply depot got hit. And I don't know how many tons of stuff went up, C4, grenades, oh, yeah. everything else. And that was a, like a... You know, that was like the mother of all bombs going off because it was just huge, a huge explosion. Knocked people off their feet, and some people were, were hurt seriously as a result of that. A wall collapsed on somebody right. and was killed. But, I mean, yeah, that, all that stuff was going on. Meanwhile, helicopters were overhead doing stuff. Uh, you know, Spooky's flying around doing what he's doing. Uh, you know, there's yelling and there's screaming, and nobody really knows what's going on at all. So yeah, again, no if, if asked how yeah. in the world did we, <laughs> quote, win, I mean, I'm not saying we won, but I mean, somehow it came to an end. And I don't know whether, you know, how that happened. I'm, oh. I'm happy it did, but I don't know. Indeed. I, don't, I don't know how it happened. And uh, as we had detailed, much more detail in SOG cast number five with Larry Trimble, our last guest, Yes. Um, Larry was up on the mountain and he took out the enemy mortar tubes. Yeah. and his recon team, as well as uh, fending off several attacks on their position by the Viet Cong NVA up there. And had not been for that, there would have been much more casualties amongst our friendly troops yeah. at FOB4. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it was, uh, yeah, there you have it. Indeed. Well, moving on to a day where you should have been dead three times. <laughs> or at least been in deep trouble. <laughs> at least deep doo-doo. Uh, <laughs> We turn to chapter 15, One Lucky Day. And again, this was uh, 
you were going to insert the eldest son. And uh, so you were out there, you had transferred from FOB1, because we closed FOB1 in mm-hmm. January, and uh, our team went down to Da Nang FOB4, which became CCN. You went to Contum, mm-hmm. but you went down as a freelance, correct? By yourself, without a team. Right, because I was very close to my Duros, the day in which I was to leave Vietnam and return home. And so um, you know, I got separated from RT Rhode Island, who had been with, and uh, wound up there. And uh, while I was there, I helped run the launch site and did some strap hanging, as we call yeah. it, a kind of volunteer to go out on things. And this was one of those cases. They were going to run an eldest son mission. And those missions, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think they were always all American. I don't remember hearing Correct. about the indigenous, and I don't know whether because that was a, it was a special level of secrecy because I'm, I was also told theoretically it was against the Geneva Code to put doctored ammunition, you know, back into the hands of the enemy to ruin their day, uh, you know, and you know, and none of us who were engaged in it felt bad about it at all, you know? yeah. But I thought there was a certain level of absurdity there because I kept thinking. Somebody, and maybe you can, because I don't know the answer to this. Somehow that ammunition got taken out of uh, Laos or Cambodia by somebody. It was taken somewhere and it was doctored. Then it was brought back by somebody and given to somebody. And then somehow we wound up with it and we were supposed to take it back and put it where it came from. And that was one of the unique services because SOG had their own supply system. That was based in, I think, Okinawa, Sisson. Oh, okay. And with uh, Ben Baker and his crew. Okay. So again, the first part of the question, I don't know how they got the ammo to them, but they doctored it. Okay. So that for our viewing audience, our listening audience, when that was used by the enemy, it would explode in their face. Right. And and the, and the, and the, the object of it was, of course, to ruin the, the individual's day. But the more important aspect of it was the psychological uh, aspect of undermining their confidence in their supply system. And their weapons. Yeah, and their weapons. Because sure. if you're standing next to a guy who you know pulls the trigger and his weapon blows up in his face, uh, that lessens your confidence in your own. So on that mission, uh, you were taking in RPGs. It was a yeah. mortar rounds for the 82? Yeah. Yeah. 80, and yeah. <clears throat> the enemy mortars were 82 millimeters. <clears throat> we used 81. Yeah. So they could use ours, but we couldn't use theirs. Yeah, clever. <laughs> I, don't know if they, I don't know if they intended it that way, but that's the way it worked out. No. So just to go back just for a little bit here to the book. <clears throat> Without a team of his own, Peters was left to strap hang or volunteer. So he found himself as part of an all-American sortie to enter Cambodia to sow the seeds of the little eldest son, meanness, into the Daniel Boone, which was Cambodia, Area of operations. In this case, it was RPGs and mortar rounds, all of which were packed to wooden crates. And on this day, uh, you get to the launch site and just take it from there because the way you tell that story. <laughs> about, oh, you mean from the from the LZ once we touch down? Yes, because because oh, okay. you get on base, yeah. everything's loaded in the King B. Yeah, yeah. The King B goes out, yeah. and then yeah. take it from there. Yeah, and then you've got to get it out of the King B more or less, and and. and you know, get ready to do what you're going to do with it. But I mean, you know, the, no no helicopter wants to spend unnecessary time, you know, in the in the vicinity when with something like that going on. And so, we got out, you know, the majority of it, and there was, as I yeah, one box left of mortar rounds. And so, 
I decided, well, I'll take the last box and, you know, take it off. So I took it out and I was walking and, and I didn't get very far, three or, four, three or four steps. And I was losing the grip on it. It was, you know, I didn't, I hadn't picked it up properly. And so I thought, well, you know, I'll just set this thing down and, and um, you know, get a new grip on it. And so that's what I did. But it, unbeknownst to me, the helicopter pilot was also anxious to do his thing. And so he rose up immediately and swung it would be to his left, and that brought the tail rotor around towards me. And I, being bent down, the tail rotor passed right over me. Uh, and that was my first indication that something dramatic had just taken place. And uh, I mean, because the sound of a helicopter tail rotor passing over you is something... Over your head. Yeah, that's something you never want to experience. <laughs> and, and you talk about sucking all the oxygen out of, the, of a room. I mean, that really sucks the air. It creates a kind of vacuum over you. And so you, you feel it in your ears, you feel it whatever, and it's got this high-pitched you know, sound that a helicopter makes, a tail rotor does. You know, and then, you know, and I don't know how... Well, I mean, I was in the act of getting Bending back over. In, well, I just bent over and grabbed it, the box, and was just, you know, getting ready to to raise up. I continued raising up. I didn't know what was going on. You know, it just so happens that I raised up after the the the, the rotor had passed over me. But, you know, had I Again, raised... Again, here's that microsecond. Yeah, had I, had I literally had I raised up, you know, just a, a, a microsecond or whatever ahead of time, I would have... Been decapitated. Oh, I, yeah, I would have been, in, yeah, yeah, that, at least decapitated. At least. <laughs> so that was, you know, so I thought, well, that's a hell of a note, you know. Indeed. So, yeah. And meanwhile, I'm looking over, and my team that I'm with, you know, they've witnessed this. Yeah. You know, and they've got this look on their face of astonishment, horror, and astonishment yeah. because, you know, I mean. I wouldn't say that. I don't know if they were worried about me, but I think maybe, maybe they were more worried about the mess they would have to have dealt with. <laughs> you know, if that had happened, they would have had to do something with me. You know, and yeah. What's the impact of a head on a on a tail rotor? Yeah, not. <laughs> I don't know. I you know, Ooh, I've things never, you don't want to think about. No, I've never seen. Not too out, long. I've never seen it happen, so I don't know. Okay. <laughs> so then, a little while later, um, you successfully insert right all the band ammo right the eldest son right. And then you're due for an extraction, but you can't quite get an extraction. So at some point, you is with you're with O'Connor. Yeah, Mike, the little leprechaun. His name was Michael G. O'Connor, <laughs> and he was about my size. And he was an E7. I was an E. But yeah, I'd survived August the 23rd. I was an E4. That's right. You yeah, had that promotion. Yeah I, yeah, I had the promotion, and so Mike was along, and. Um, yeah, we we we'd gotten rid of what we were. You know, we we'd done what we were sent Successfully to do. Successfully inserted. Yeah, and, and so but the Kingbees had to go back for refueling or something. I'm not sure why they had to leave, but they did, and so we had to do something with ourselves while we waited for them to come back. So we kind of grouped together in a in a in a protected cover of trees and and, and whatnot. And I took out a, my. Uh, I had a map, and, I, and one of my responsibilities was to make some notes on it, so that we could verify that we'd put it, you know, where it was supposed to be, and all that stuff. Yeah, and also because after every eldest son insertion, it had to be recorded and then reported to headquarters in their after action reports. Right, right, right. So I, w- I, I, I sat down and, and you know I, I leaned back on my rucksack. And I think there was a slight rise behind me that allowed me to do that comfortably. And I was leaning back. 
against whatever I was leaning against, and I had my I brought my knees up so that it make my lap kind of like a you know a lap desk, and I had the map spread there, and I was kind of looking at the map and trying to figure out what I was supposed to be figuring out, and um, I heard this you know I'd be, I'd run I'd been with Mike before and I knew him yeah. well. And, you know, you can feel a certain tension in the air when oh, yeah. when things are going wrong. When the pucker factor tightens. Yeah, something, <laughs> something keyed me in that this that all was not right. And so I, I looked up from the map, and Mike was across from me. And the look on his face was absolutely, it was a combination of fear, uh, stark terror, aghastness. I mean, pick your, pick your word. But I thought, yeah. I... You know, what ran through my mind is, you know, whatever it is, it's got to be awfully bad. At least a battalion or a division. Yeah, I, th- of I NBA. thought I was going to look behind me and there was going to be an <laughs> NVA tank division yeah. or something like that converging on us, you know. And so I looked, you know, I, I looked I, I naturally to my right. And, you know, as I said, I was on a slight incline. And I came not quite eye to eye, but almost eye to eye with a centipede that was about one to two feet long. Yeah, please describe it because people listening, anybody in America, unless you've been in foreign jungles, would never understand the dimensions of this centipede. I always think of a little caterpillar when I think centipede, yeah. but yours is how long? What was it? What it, was, <laughs> it, it was long. Uh, I didn't ask it to pose while I measured it. But I mean... <laughs> Yeah, you know, but I, it was it was long enough. Let's say that. But no, anybody who's been around a true centipede, you know, there's, there's millipedes and there's centipedes and there's these various things. But you know, centipedes are those things that have all the legs that kind of undulate when they walk. They kind of somehow move them, you know. And, right. Which reminds me, this is a total break from what we're doing, but one of the best stories I've ever heard, and that was about the centipede who allegedly had <laughs> never trouble had never had any trouble walking until somebody asked him how he did it. <laughs> and that there's a lesson there and so anyway I'm sure, yeah, yes yeah like was, bees they can't fly but they do yeah it was that kind of thing yeah but anyway yeah so he he kind of undulated his way past and uh i subsequently heard that they these were so highly poisonous that that even if they walked on your skin you broke out in some kind of something rash really or, yeah you didn't die but you you know you paid for it indeed and, and so um yeah so and if they did bite you Finito. Yeah, well, it was, yeah, I guess. But anyway, yeah, he came, he walked right along from my shoulder down along my, I had my arm, I was still holding the map, and he walked along my right arm, and, and when he got about where my where my waist was or whatever, he decided to take a right-hand turn and go back into the jungle and uh, or wherever he came from on whatever mission he was on. Oh, my God. And, uh, yeah. How high off the ground, like three inches, four inches? Oh, you mean the centipede itself? Yeah. Oh no, they're very, they're very flat. I don't, I I would guess he probably was. He was pretty big around. I'd say maybe two inches. Yeah, still, but a foot and a half, two feet long. Yeah. Oh my god. I've seen pictures of him. In fact, I think I sent you one of a guy holding up one, which was about four feet long. Yes, I've run, I have erased that from my mind, but you did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, they, they, and and you know, people don't believe they exist, but I'm here to tell you they exist. Indeed, <laughs> I almost wasn't here to tell you that they exist, but I, I can now tell you and verify that their big centipedes exist in South Vietnam. Oh my God! Or, or and Laos, Cam- or Cambodia. In yes, this case, this was Cambodia. Cambodia, yes, Cambodia. it was a Cambodian. So, so 
to this is all in one day. Right. So now that was king, all that was all in a couple hours. Indeed. Yeah. So <laughs> the survivor from August 23rd has these two incidents in one day yeah. after and welcome to 1969. So then the king bees finally come. You have a successful extraction. Mm-hmm. Nothing on you. You go back to Contum, FOB2, which was CCC, and uh, which was an unusual MACV SOG top secret headquarters area for Contum because they literally had a road that drove through the center of the camp. And I've never had a good answer as to why yeah. anybody would have a camp like that. So on one side, there was the housing areas, and on the other side was more the operational side, the the, the, the clubhouse, mm-hmm. S4, Club. yeah. blah, blah. Yeah. So you get back to base, a fellow recon man from FOB1, John T. Walton I, who yes. we mentioned earlier about him and Ron Podlasky being yes. so yeah. fortunate to survive with you yeah. that night yeah. of August 23rd. Yeah. You and John gather, because right. obviously you had shared notes before, and you somehow you let John talk you into a poker game? Well, it was something like that, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I came back and, you know, had not been in my hoots very long and was, I think I was outside. And I, it was mine was next door to his. And so yeah. I saw, he came out of his, you know, and he said, come on, I'm going to the club. Let's go over there and, and have some drinks and play some poker. Well, you and I had played poker with John before. Oh, yeah. He and still you, you, did, money you didn't want to do that. No. You know, <laughs> the, 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 and you, you claim this and say you saw it, that he, when he had his winnings, he would take, take them back to his uh, upright locker and just yeah. throw them in. Yes. And when you open the door, money would fall out. Good, yes. And, and we witnessed it once. Yeah, because where... he, cause he, he was so successful. And his and his poker. So that was my money. Yeah, and and just and just so we're, I don't remember you discussed this before about who he was, but I mean, I'll never forget when I was at, when we were at FOB one and we were just together. And we were sitting on the sandbags of the perimeter, or something were out there, and we're just sitting there talking and whatever. And so we got to, like you will. You talk, you know, where are yeah. you from? We just yeah. met each other, and I told him, and where are you from? He told me. And he, you know, well, you know, you go around and talk for a while, and he asked me. And what, nobody knew where Bentonville, Arkansas. No, was. he said he was from Arkansas, <laughs> and then he said, you know, I, I, and he asked me what my family did and so forth, and I told him, and of course, then I had to reciprocate. So I said, yeah, what did your dad do? He says, oh, he own, he owns a couple of grocery stores. Yeah, five and dime stores. Yeah, I said, <laughs> oh, and that's all I said because I didn't know at that yeah. time there was no Walmart. No, and there was nothing not like '68. Yeah, no, there was nothing, nothing like that. So anyway, but he was, and I don't want to believe that he treated his poker winnings that way because he felt he was so rich. But I don't <laughs> no. think he was. He wasn't. He was a very down to earth guy. So anyway, I for, I hesitated because I hadn't really cleaned up, and I didn't want to lose money to John. Um, but I said okay. So we went across, and like you said, you had to cross the road to the other side of the compound in order to get to the uh, watering hole. Uh, so we went there and started, and it was, I, I can't remember what time of night it was. It wasn't dark yet when we started. Oh, um, indeed. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> and so one thing followed another, and, uh, you know, we played poker. A little food, a little yeah, drink, a little poker. Poker starts, you know, and then, you know, that goes on and on, and, and slowly people are dropping out, you know, because... You know, John's got their money. Oh yeah, 
<laughs> Some people actually wanted to see. And the fact you're still in a poker game attests to you being a pretty good poker player. Yeah, and actually, you know... <laughs> Some people wanted to sleep and things like that. You oh, know, that, so, oh, that cost. So we're finally yeah. down. We're finally down to me, and John, and myself. You know, he's already taken. I think, all, if not all of my money, very close. <laughs> but he's not satisfied. No, of course. No, he says. So let's play gin. <laughs> yeah, because you're out of money now. <laughs> yeah, let's play gin. And fortunately, I could say in all truth, I don't know how to play gin. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so he was disappointed. But we, he said, well, let's have one for the road you know, before we head back. So. You know, we get another round of drinks or whatever. And about that time, there was this hellacious explosion. I mean, big time explosion. Incoming. Incoming. And it wasn't on our side. We could tell that it was on the other side. And we kind of looked at each other, you know, like, what in the world was that? You know, and then, you know, it was a ensuing, you know, then you could begin hearing things happening. And, uh, you know, we were trying to figure out what, what should we do? You know, every, our weapon, web gear, everything is on the other side. And so we, we <laughs> did. Hooch. Yeah, we did what any good SF guy would do. We said, let's just sit here and have another drink. Indeed. You know, th this will work its way out. <laughs> you know, <laughs> somehow this problem will take care of itself. And then we can, you know, we can go about our way. You know, so we, uh, we did oh. just that. And then finally we made our way back crossed the road back to the other side and made our way to our hooch. And what had happened was a rocket had been fired by the into the compound and it had landed just outside the doors to our hooches. More, wow. more on his than mine. And um, pretty much demolished his hooch altogether. And um, there was somebody, one of his roommate was inside, as I recall, and, and received a lot of shrapnel wounds uh and the the ceiling collapsed down on the bed and they had some bookshelves nailed to the walls and anyway it was it, i think i've seen pictures of it and i remember it it was it was bad yeah had but john been in the bed asleep would, yeah and likewise myself my <clears throat> side of things was not a lot better off right you know i had fewer things in there and so there wasn't quite the mess but i had i nailed up an ammo box on my wall to put books in and, you know, there was a few things, and all that was, was messed up. Um, blown off the wall. Blown off the wall. Yeah. And there were, you know, there were, as some people like to describe them, gaping holes, you know, <laughs> where there shouldn't be gaping holes. You know, and so I assume that had I been there, it would have been, I don't know, but it wouldn't, you know. You would have been severely wounded if not killed outright yeah for the sake and of this john would have been dead because he would have been crushed right and for this you know i took some i suppose literary license here in the naming of one lucky day and for this you know for the sake of <laughs> for the sake of the discussion we can say i escaped you know with with whatever on if that you were day, a cat times, you used yeah. three of the nine I, lives there's no doubt about my, there's no doubt of in my mind that i would have died with regards to the helicopter yeah. thing the centipede I don't know. I, he wasn't I, hungry, so you. Well, you, well, well, no. If he, if he, if he'd actually bitten me, I, I, I'm not sure his venom would have killed me, but I probably would have died of fright. Indeed, you know, because that's just not <laughs> you something, me both. You know, yeah, not something you dream <laughs> of having happen uh, happen to. You. And then with regards to the rocket, uh, I don't know, you know. Yeah. But let's just say I had a lucky, a very lucky day. Very lucky day. Very lucky indeed. day. Yeah. So and, with all this. Um, how did your quest in life mm. lead you to this moment? I mean, 
at some point in time, yeah, uh, you're you you're you're a California lad growing up there in sunny California, Southern right. California. Yeah, so Oxnard. Oxnard, indeed. And then from there, at some point, you go off to college. Yeah, which was very intense in the education. Right. But at some point, there's this quest, or what? How would Jordan Peterson put it? For like, <laughs> as you're looking forward oh, how, into your life, yeah, how did I join the quest? Yes, indeed. That's a good question, and I think it's a you know it's it's one that probably every special forces person you talk to would have uh, an interesting story, and they and they would have some similarities. As Jordan Peterson would say, there's something kind of uh, universal about these kinds of things as to what motivate people to do certain kinds of things. But yeah, I grew up in, in, in Oxnard, California, had gone to grammar school and high school in the same place. My father was a welder. I came from a, a decidedly middle-class family and they did, my mother worked and they did what parents did. And a lot of parents did. They worked and suffered, uh, saved their money so that I could go to school. I was the first one in the families either side to go to college. Wow, is that right? Uh, yes, I went up to college in the Bay Area at St. Mary's College of California and uh, got a degree in philosophy, of all things. Uh, <laughs> and and in, in the course of that, I also spent a year in Paris, studying at the University of Paris. Um, so, you know, I came back from that and uh, was, you know, my father, this is a true story, my father, he worked at the Point Magoo Naval Shipyard. He was a oh, welder, yeah. and it was also the headquarters of the Pacific Missile Range, where they fired missiles out into the ocean to track them and whatever they did with them. Anyway, he was he'd worked there for a long time, and so he had a, he had me that he'd spent all this money on, thinking that I he, <laughs> he hoped I was going to be a lawyer or something useful, right. and I, instead I get a degree in philosophy. <laughs> and so he goes into the civilian personnel office at, at Point Magoo, yeah. and he has this meeting with a guy by the name of Tom Coker. And, he's, and he didn't know Tom, but he says, more or less, he says, Tom, I've got this son <laughs> you know, that had done this, but he doesn't really, I don't know what, you know, he needs a job, yeah, yeah. You know, and I don't know what he's qualified to do. Anyway, Tom, wonderful man, uh, became a close friend over the course of years. And um, I had an interview with him, and he hired me. And so that was where I was working when the Vietnam War really began. You know, that was the era of the draft. And, um, you know, it was apparent that one way or the other I was going to probably become involved. My father wanted me to join the Air Force because he thought that was safer. Um, I didn't want to do that. And that gets into this business. I was a philosophy student, and many of the listeners out there may be aware of this. The, the, philosophy, the, the popular philosophy at that time was existentialism. You know? And the whole point of it was that you were, you, you were or became what you did. And that you know, the important thing for a person in life was to gather as many experiences as they could and experiences in areas that were important and critical. That was also like a new way of thinking. Yeah, it was. At least publicly, people talked about it and colleges were picking it up at the time. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, I thought, well, you know, it's clear that, you know, of of all of the experiences that humanity has been through over the course of its existence, warfare is pretty common. You know, maybe the most common thing. So that's something one ought to have some nodding acquaintance with. You know? <laughs> At least a nodding a acquaintance. Nodding acquaintance with. Yeah. So I so I volunteered, you know, to go in. I was a volunteer. I, mm-hmm. my my name my number R A one eight four eight six four seven. All right. Uh, there I am. And um I was going and and when I went to do it, the recruiter told me, Do I have a deal for you? 
He said, we're going to have the first ever all-college graduate infantry officer candidate class. He said, the entire class is going to be made of nothing but, but college graduates. Wow. And I can get you in on this. And I thought, well, yeah, infantry. I mean, that's what warfare is about. It's on the ground, you yeah. know, mano a mano or whatever, you know, and infantry. Yeah, so I was going to, you know, so I set off. And um, first I did basic training at Fort Dix. And uh, I'm proud to say I was the outstanding trainee of the cycle. No kidding. Yeah, philosopher king here. See, I barely got through Fort Dix, but yeah, that's, a, yeah, although that's I, another although, story. <laughs> although I was a philosopher king in the making, I also turned out to be that I could do you know those things fairly well. So, And then I did AIT there. and then went Where to, you had to do land navigation, which you were good at. Yeah, that too. And then we were sent. Then we were moved to Fort Benning. That was where Office, Infantry Officer Candidate School was, and I got started in that. And uh, some ways into it, I got expelled. I got <laughs> kicked out. Um, and when the commanding officer had me into his office to tell me this, he said, and I never forgot the words, "Candidate Peters, you have a bad attitude." <laughs> And I couldn't argue with him. I, yeah. Okay, I, you know, from your perspective, there's no doubt I have a bad attitude. I mean, you know, I mean, to be awakened at four o'clock in the morning and have the the drawer in which you've carefully arranged your underwear and toothbrushes and everything else, yeah. have it dumped onto the floor, you know, yeah. just to harass you. No, that's you know, I, yeah, yeah, I, I developed an attitude. Right, and before you got thrown out of OCS, wasn't there one night you went AWOL? Oh yes, yeah. They were filming. That's the really movie. important, though. Oh yeah, because this, yeah, this plays a role in it. Uh, they were they were filming the movie The Green Beret at Fort Benning with John Wayne. With John Wayne, and everybody knows that movie. It's world famous. And uh, I w- one of the people who was in Officer Candidate School with me was Thomas Mahan, a really crazy guy, um, <laughs> who didn't get kicked. Who did not get kicked out of OCS, which I still can't account for to this day, but. <laughs> He he wanted to be an actor, in yeah. fact, and a poet. He was both. He went on to have some success in that. But anyway, he says to me, he says, "Hey, John, he says, uh, let's crash the the uh, the cast party." Yeah. He said, "I've heard that they're having a cast party tonight. I know where it is." He says, <laughs> "Why don't we go?" And I said, "No, come on, you're you're joking." He said, "No, come on, let's go." So we went AWOL from OCS that night or for part of the night and we went to where the cast party was and there was the cast from from filming that were filming uh, the movie John Wayne was not there I can't claim that I saw John Wayne he was off doing something else but I sat a good portion of the night next to his son Pat Wayne who's a class act class act and he and I had a nice conversation you know and uh, you know we couldn't talk about a lot but I know we got along drank some drinks together and then we Tom and I snuck back into the OCS barracks and without being caught. Without being caught. Uh, good training. So when I was kicked out of OCS, then they put you in what they call a casual company, in which they don't know what to do with you. Those are the those are the misfits that they're not really <laughs> can't figure out what to do with. And so while they're trying to figure that out, they put you in this place, and all you do is is uh, detail work. You go out and pick up cigarette butts. You paint stones. Paint stones. You do yeah. all kinds of meaningless. KP. Yeah, all kinds of meaningless uh. stuff. And so that's where I was, you know. And I didn't like that, you know. <laughs> and while they were trying to figure out what they were going to do with me, I was trying to figure out what did I want to do with myself. Yeah. I and mean, we're back to this kind of a thing, you know. And it's sure. A, 
you know, and, and, and in life you find yourself in those situations. You know, you have free will. You can make choices. And, and, the, and the important issue becomes what choices do you make? I mean, you know, I could have, I mean, I wouldn't have, but had they offered me the opportunity to be a cook, I wouldn't have taken it. You know, right. they offered me the opportunity to be a truck driver, I wouldn't have taken it. Well, on, on at Fort Benning, as some people may know, is where the Airborne School is. You know, and I'd seen these dudes walking around with their their fatigues tucked into their high top boots. Into their Cochrans. Yeah, their Cochrans. Holly spit shine Cochrans. Yeah, and boots. I thought, wow, that looks pretty cool. You know, and so I said, well, I think I'll do that. You know, <laughs> so I'd like to learn how to jump out of airplanes. I think that would be kind of neat. So anyway, so I went to uh, airborne school and. Uh, once again, I became an honor graduate. I was an honor graduate from jump at school. jump school. At jump school, I have saying the, something. I have the letter to prove it. Indeed. Uh, <laughs> and uh, anyway, so when I was nearing the end of jump school, of course, then you know, in the military, you're constantly faced with where you're going to be assigned, what are you sure. going to do next, and so that was I was coming up to that decision. You know, I, I, was I going to be with the 101st Airborne? Was I going to be? What was I going to do? You know, well, I I remembered the Green Beret. Uh, I never, I hadn't read the book. I'd heard the, I'd heard the uh, song. I liked the song. Yeah. Pretty inspiring. Um, and so I thought, well, I'll do that. You know, that seems like, I mean, that seems, from what I hear, from what I hear, yeah. that's, that's heavy duty. You know, let's do that. So yeah, I volunteered to, to, for special forces and was accepted. And down to Bragg I went, you know, and then got involved with that. But here you did not get the Honor Graduate Award because... Absolutely not. I mean, this is another one of those things in life that (laughs) life can throw at you. You know, I I was there, and I don't know how many weeks I was into the whole business when there was a a training accident, which is not funny because a young guy was killed. uh, And I think it was a repelling kind of thing they were doing. I think it involved repelling. I don't know if out of a helicopter or what. But anyway... He was killed, and a contributing factor, maybe the, must have been the major contributing factor, he's dying was because he had, he wore glasses, and so the commanding officer said all immediately, all those who wear glasses are out, in training group out, so in that cycle I was out. Yeah, you know, one day I'm in, next day I'm out, you know, and um, yeah, I could understand why you know why they might feel that way. I mean, yeah, you don't want to. Yeah, I could see where there were dangers involved. I, you know, I needed glasses. Without my glasses, I was pretty well blind. Um, so then I go into the uh, back into another casual company. You know. <laughs> now they're trying to figure. Now out. you're at Bragg, though. Yeah, yeah, I'm Bragg, and they're trying to, you know, they're trying to figure out what to do with me. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out to do what with me. Yeah, yeah. Um, the good thing was, I suppose, is that they said, you know, that they realized this was a raw deal. I mean, you know, that they that was really. I would get the shaft. I wouldn't, yeah, shaft. They wouldn't call it tragic, but they said, you know, it's a bad deal to, to do this to people. And there were a half a dozen or a dozen of us, I don't know how many. And so they more or less said to us, whatever you want to do, we will arrange that you can do that. You know, if you want to go to Europe, fine, we'll send you to Europe. If you want to go into armor, okay, or artillery, whatever you want to do, you know, we'll take care of you. And I said, no, I want to go to Vietnam. I said, you know, that's what this is all about. You know, it's going to Vietnam. And so I volunteered to go to Vietnam. And you land in Vietnam at yeah. Cameron Bay? Yeah. And guess what I go into? <laughs> the holding. 
casual company. Casual company there. I, yeah, I go into the casual <laughs> company there. You know, um, had my records, you know, and everything else. And so, of course. Uh, and as is often the case, you know, in the military, you know, some spec four E four is in charge of your destiny. Indeed, your life. You know, this guy, this guy is sitting behind a, a, a card table. You know, with people lined up, and he's kind of, you know, playing God. Oh, well, you're going to the 101st, you're going here, you're going there. You know, it's like the mythology where, you know, the God sits there and nods which way, whether you're going to survive or not. And so he opened up my records and says, oh, you're coming from Bragg. I said, yeah. He said, oh, good, I'll send you to 5th Special Forces Group. <laughs> I said, okay. With glasses. With glasses. Yes, <laughs> uh, I mean, that's the ultimate irony is I wound up doing probably worse things or more dangerous things than that general ever thought of. Indeed. And with my glasses on. But anyway, so I go to, um, you know, I get sent there. And then that's when I encounter at uh, Da Nang, I guess it was. That's where it happened. Was it Da Nang? Where did it happen that you got the, you got the offer? Um, well, at the, end of at the end of your in-country training, you'd be asked for volunteers. And then the volunteers would be shipped to Da Nang for your pre-SOG briefing. Yeah, you signed I, the paper. Well, I had none of that. I went. So your experience was? Well, I went out of I went out of the, this casual company to wherever I went, and there I was, uh, and and somebody is saying to me, and again the the details I can't recall. Again, exactly. this is early sixty eight, nineteen sixty eight. Yeah, and essentially somebody said to me, "Do I have it?" He said, "You really want the deal? I mean, you you know you want." <laughs> <laughs> you want to really do something super duper, you know, yeah. you really want to be the man you think you are? Yeah. Oh, yeah, sure. He said, okay, I've got it for you. I said, well, great, what is this? I can't tell you until you say yes. <laughs> I said, what? He said, yeah. He said, this thing is so, you know, it gives that look. You know, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's so, so top secret. Right. He didn't, I don't think he even used the word top secret. Oh, he secret. couldn't. Yeah, he couldn't. He was just, he just looked, yeah, you know, no, no. You got to trust me on this one. Yeah, you got to trust me on this yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. said, he says, raise your right hand. No, he says, just say yes and I'll tell you. And then you're in. I said, okay, I'm in. And so, you know, that's when they then take you to the next level in which you're into this room. And I think there were about six of us. That's all? Yeah, it said yes. You get the famous map treatment. Yeah, and then, then, it's, then it's like, again, out of some kind of, a, you know, maybe a, I don't know what kind of a movie, but there's a, there's a, on the wall is something behind a, a curtain. Yeah. You know, and uh, first of all, we sit at the table and the first thing you have to do is get your code name, your secret code name. Oh yeah. It's like getting your secret ring, you know? <laughs> and so they had, he throws a bunch of cards, you know, on, on the table, which had names, you know, code names already on them. Yeah. Know? And most of the guys said, okay, yeah. Yeah, they picked up one. One guy, remember, I, this is very politically incorrect, but anyway, <laughs> he, he was black and he picked the code name Halloween. Oh, no. Okay. So, um, you know, I looked through the, the ones and none of them really appealed to me. So I said, can I pick my own? He said, sure. Yeah, pick your own. So I picked mine, Pascal, who was a, a French philosopher. Who, indeed. Who I was, uh, who meant a lot to me. So anyway, that was my code name so after we got our code name and then oh and then they bring in the thing that you sign that you're not going to spill you know you're never going to talk about this for on 20 pain. years at least. yeah whatever it was for the pain yeah and i don't know what they were going to do to you but they <laughs> implied that it was going to be bad you know so we signed that 
what else did you do? But I mean, other things. They, they, you well, did, that was it. They told you to put away your pads and, and pens because there's no yeah, notes at this take, briefing. Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, you get the big setup, and then a colonel came in. You had a colonel? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I only had a sergeant major. That's okay. I think the sergeant major did the first stuff, but then yeah, yeah. when it got to the pulling back of the curtain, yeah, yeah. we needed a heavy hitter up there. Indeed. So the colonel came in and ripped back the, <laughs> the, uh, the curtain, you know. And I, I looked at it, you know, and I said, why am I looking at a map of the San Joaquin Valley? Yeah. <laughs> That's all it looked like. It looked like yeah, California. Because Vietnam reminded you of California. Yeah, it looked like California. I said, why am I looking at, you know, <laughs> what in the world is, are they going to ship me home to do something, you know, yeah. Pick lettuce or something. No, and then he said, you know, this is this is Laos, Cambodia, and South Vietnam. And he goes through the whole thing and he tells you, you know, this is what you're gonna do and you're gonna run missions across here and they're top secret and you know all you can't that. tell your mama. Yeah, you can't tell anybody and everything else and so you know, then that's it. You know, I go outside and they put me on a helicopter to Fubai. Welcome to Fubai. Yeah, I landed at Fubai and I virtually know no more when I land in Fubai than I do did when I left <laughs> Fort Benning, <laughs> you know, really, I was, you know. I, Welcome to the Secret War, dude. Yeah, yeah, the last official training I'd received was jumping out of airplanes. The rest of oh. it was all serendipitous, you know. But again, we laughed. But I mean, I'd like to bring it back to that issue that, you know. Sure. Along the way, I had free will. I could have selected anything I wanted to do or said no to anything I didn't want to do. But no, you know, I had in mind something that I thought it was important for me to do, experience, learn. And so I said yes. And I think that would probably be, you know, many people in special ops and those kinds of people, I think, have parallel experiences. They may not have been as conscious of it as I was because of my philosophy background, if you will, or whatever. But yes, yeah, so I was conscious of what I was doing. But I think operative underneath... Uh, all of it was the same kind of stuff. We grew up, and this is a Jordan Peterson thing, I think all of us that got involved in that grew up with one kind of a hero or another. You know, we had, in a, from a early on, we had heroes. Somebody we wanted to live up to. Somebody we wanted to emulate. It could have been our father, it could have been a neighbor, it could have been Superman, it could have been... Audie Hop, Murphy. Hopalong Cassidy, I yeah. don't know. Uh, I had Hopalong Cassidy twin pistols at one time, uh, which I, you know, obviously, you know, I was a th- and with chaps. And, and of course, yeah. yeah. And I think I was about seven years old or something. There exists a picture of me with a hoppy hat on, the whole thing. Um, but anyway, you know, I think that gets ingrained into you somewhere along the line, and then from then on, in a deep-seated way, nothing will do except that you do it. And that if you don't, you will live for the rest of your life with a kind of disappointment that will haunt you. In self. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, it, it might not lead to anything catastrophic. It just will, you will have a constant gnawing sensation that there was an opportunity you missed. And that had you taken that opportunity, you would have somehow been better off for having done it. Yeah. You know, and I think all of us who were in SOG risks stupidities and all involved because let's face it it was it was a there were aspects of the sog mission which were blatantly stupid i mean what they were having us do under oh, the yeah. conditions they were having us do it with so little intelligence and so chance of such a small chance often of pulling off the mission and then once you did of that 
of the consequences of whatever it was you brought back having any measurable effect whatsoever. On or if the, it did, you wouldn't on, even be told. Yeah, you wouldn't know about it. Yeah. So I mean, yeah, it was just it was a, it was a weird thing to be a part of. Indeed. You know, and uh, so you land at Fubai, and the first thing you land on is a hatchet force. Right. Yes. <laughs> Welcome to Fubai, and yeah. So a hatchet force at that time. Uh, would you remember which company it was? No. But it was a Hatchet Force and a Hatchet Force company at Fubai. Yeah, and that was the, your platoon. I think they were company size. Platoon, and, yeah, yeah, they had a company with platoon size yeah. operations. And we would go out large. on, and we didn't go across the fence. At least I didn't go across the right. fence with them. We'd go out on, on, in other kinds of in-country kinds of search and destroy type things. Most of it was training because the the indigenous people were Cambodians, and oh yeah, yeah they were Cam, and they were. I hope there's no Cambodians in the audience, but they were not good. Um, they were hard to train and they were hard for they, they wore around their necks what they call their Buddha bag it was on a, a thong a leather thong and it was a literally a kind of a little leather bag in which they kept you know various things that brought them luck and whenever you would get into an intense firefight of some kind they would lay down on the ground and put their Buddha bag in their mouth you know, and that was going to save their lives. And in, in most cases, it worked because when you're lying on the ground, you know, <laughs> you're fairly safe. As long as you're not getting overrun. Yeah, yeah well, you know, that's pretty good. But anyway, it got so bad that um, all of them were literally, without any notice, rounded up. I don't, do you remember that day? Vaguely. Yeah, they were all rounded up in no prior knowledge of this whatsoever. The entire group of of Cambodians, and I don't know how many there were, 125 or something like that, they were marched to the gate of the compound and off the compound with only what they could carry. And my understanding is from there they were put on some kind of transportation that took them back to where they came from. Indeed. The, and that kind of put, you know, that certainly crippled. Because there had been a couple of firefights in, in, on base that mm-hmm. involved the Cambodians with the, either the Brew or the Vietnamese. Right, right. None of whom liked each other, all of whom hated each other yeah. more than... Yeah. Well, that kind of crimped the style of the... Red, the Hatch Force. Yeah, because now... At that they, point. Yeah, they just gotten rid of, you know, <laughs> the majority of their people. And then I then I went to Recon. And you landed on Rhode Island? Rhode Island. Which was one of the premier Recon teams, and the one zero was... Les Daniels. Indeed. Oh, uh, what a tiger. Yeah. I don't know what portion of him was uh, Indian. American Indian, but yes. whatever it was, he carried it fully in his blood. I mean, that man had instincts. He did. He was not a man of great humor. I mean, he no. Was, no, he was not somebody you could. Ch- I never, I never got to know him in the sense of knowing somebody because he was very quiet. You know, and very, he could give you those eyes. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, if you did something <laughs> wrong, you know, and he all that's all he had to do was look at you. You know, and you thought, oh God. Yeah, you knew. Yeah, yeah, but. And then I went to, uh, I was in the first 1-0 class that was held. Oh, is that right? Yeah. yeah. I don't know how I got involved with that. But again, I uh, got involved. 1-0 school is a reconnaissance team leader school, it Indeed. was called. And uh, so I went down and went through reconnaissance team leader school. So that was an interesting experience. Very. And um, Dave, a little disorganized. Dave Badger, Jeffrey Junkins is a picture. Yes, yes, yes. Of you all, like, some portion of the training, if not the actual graduation, yeah. you guys. Were... No, no, there was no real graduation. <laughs> this was the first class, and I must say it was kind of disjointed. I understand that it really developed into something a lot better. It did. But, you know, but at that first class, there was a little bit of uh, disjunction. But that was, we enjoyed it. We spent a lot of time in the club. Uh, Indeed. You know, telling stories. And, and 
that reminds me because uh, you know we, we, you and I encounter special forces guys today. Oh yeah. And I think they have a hard time believing that we did what we did. One, and that we were so young and so inexperienced and given so much uh, responsibility. Sure. And that there was, we were we were winging it literally. There was no guide. This was not the mission of special forces. Was not to run recon. Right. You know, and and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that it was called command and control to set it apart from any other kind of special forces activity. We commanded and controlled. We didn't advise. You know, m- most special forces operations in, uh, involve some kind of advising of a of a yeah, counter, counter, counter revolutionary force or something. Yeah. yeah, we didn't do that. We commanded our troops, and so we did train them up. We did train them up. Of course, you had less with less though. Oh. What a premier! Yeah. He's probably the best one zero in camp at that time. Well, aside from yourself. Well, no, no, I wouldn't. No, no, uh, he was f- he far exceeded anything I ever did on the ground. No, he was amazing yeah, he, man. Yeah, he was something. Absolutely. But uh, yeah, so we were at um, one zero school, and um, you know, then going from there. Yeah, and you ran a few missions with less, yeah. and then by was it like at the end of October or early November or some point. There's a crisis, and somebody comes to John Peters yeah. and says, "Hey, how about cleaning up this little deficit of twenty-five thousand missing from the club funds?" Yeah, for that, the, was, uh, that, that was another one of those totally unexpected <laughs> things. The former club manager, whose name we shall not use, we shall not. Yeah, uh, and I don't know whether he did anything illegal or whether he stole. We just it. know he spent a lot of money. Yeah, it's all we know is that suddenly the club. Well, we can't say that. Everybody who was a Green Beret there did come home with a brand new, specially tailored sports coat. I didn't. I had mine for years. Well, I, see, you I weren't in with the out crowd, or I, you weren't out with the in crowd. Whatever, whatever it was, go. I never got a green sport coat. <laughs> but anyway, so, you know, they suddenly discovered that the club is $25,000 in debt. Yeah. And they're about to close FOB1. Right. And they don't want this to come out. You know, because part of the closing ceremonies, I guess, or the process or whatever they thought there was going to be, I don't know, some kind of an audit I, beats me. But, uh, you know. You, Again, it's a magical mystery tour. Yeah. We're in a top secret operation where nobody knows what the hell's really yeah. going on. Yeah. We're going to close the base, but don't tell anybody. Yeah. And when we close it, oh, can we clean up this $25,000 deficit? So I think you, we all discovered that that's <laughs> one of the great advantages of top secret. You can get away with anything. <laughs> Let's yeah. say, say, I'm sorry, I can't tell you about that. Uh, but anyway, so we had a meeting in the club. And you, yeah. you tell me you don't remember this too clearly, but I certainly do. We're in the club and, you know, uh, the sergeant major, whoever it was. Harris. Harris is telling us of the bad news. Yeah. And what he considers to be bad news. I didn't consider it bad news. I don't care. It did come out of your yeah, pocket. It didn't come out of my pocket, so I didn't really care. <laughs> so anyway, but he's saying this is serious. We got to do something about it. Okay, yeah, yeah. And so we need somebody to come in and and take over, you know, so to speak, and straighten all this mess out and somehow recover from this twenty five thousand dollar deficit. <laughs> in I would this say oh, about thirty five minutes. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, no, there was a deadline, you know. So that was the deadline. So everybody kind of looks around at everybody else. And to this day, I don't know who it was. Somebody says, Peters do it. Let Peters do it. You know, maybe it was because, I don't know why. Maybe because it was a, I was a college graduate and they therefore assumed I was good at math. I don't know. You know but I was a philosopher. I wasn't a yeah. mathematician. Yeah. You know, so anyway, they say, 
So in short order, I made I am made club manager yeah. of the club, oh. you know, which was a, a significant thing. It was. I mean, it was very important to the, us to those Absolutely. of us who would go, so. yeah, who go in there and drink. It was extremely important. <laughs> and so there I was, you know, didn't have a clue as to what it meant to be a club manager, and uh, you know, and the rest is history. We, <sighs> we did recover. It it took some creative. I remember the flavor of the club changed, and it became more efficient all of a sudden. Damn or right, before. you're damn right. I mean, if you were going to get a drink, you paid for it. That's right. Other it was, times, you yeah, might just and, get away and, with sneaking and, and one. If, and, if the, <laughs> and we started using shot glasses for the first time. We're measuring this stuff out. And we had the Vietnamese girls working back yes. then. You know, and, and they were used to being pretty free with stuff. Indeed. <laughs> and not just liquor. And, uh, you know, so... <laughs> So I had to get them on board, you know, look, your boyfriend comes in here, no, we're not emptying half the bottle into his glass, you know, no, we're going to do this. Buy but the, the book. But the big, the, big money, the big money maker was, if you remember this, we had access to booze that nobody else had. Yeah. You know, we and once, slot machines. We once had a helicopter bring in a container load of it. You remember that? No. Yeah. We brought a container load of stuff in and set it down in the compound. I mean, we're talking. Is that the king being crashed in the compound uh, that time? No, but anyway. No, okay. I mean, this is this is well, this is yeah, this is major delivery service of major goods, <laughs> and, and of course, there weren't enough of us in the compound to use this. No, my plan was to sell it to the 101st Airborne Division guys down the road. And of course, you had a friendly Marines be willing. Those, At least the officers that flew. Those guys too. Yeah, of course. Anybody who wanted booze, we were open for business. There we go. And it, you know, it cost us about a dollar a bottle for it or something like that, as I recall. That's what, we, what I sold it to our own guys. Yeah, yeah. It was for a buck. Is that right? Yeah. But for anybody else, uh, you know, sky's the limit. And so that's how we, you know, how we managed to yeah. do it. But I mean, the worst part, and I'm worse, the, uh, you know, everybody thinks, oh boy, being club managers, God, that's got to be great. <laughs> because there was a little room attached to the club that the club yeah, yeah. manager got to, that was where he lived. I know. I, and it was, air, it was air conditioned. It, it was. was small, but it was, it was comfortable. And everybody thought, you know, I'd kill for that. And so I, and I thought, wow, I'm a lot, landed on my feet here, you know, until. The first night at 11 o'clock, or tw no, about 1 o'clock in the morning, there's this horrendous pounding on the door. Peters, Peters, open up. I want a six-pack. You know, <laughs> you know, so you open up and give him a six-pack. You know, three minutes later, bang, bang, bang. Peters, Peters, I want a bottle of scotch. Oh, okay. And this goes on night after night after night. And you're making up a deficit. And I'm making up a deficit. Boy, oh, boy. And did it. Indeed, indeed. So uh, you go to Contum at some point. In 69, you're done with the Army in 69 or 70? And then... 69, May of 69. May 69. Yeah. Wow, we missed each other by a month. Yeah. Indeed. Okay, so then you're out, and then what happens next as you go on with your life quest? Oh, my life quest. Well, I came back and um, took up the job, the, the one that I had that my father had got for me at Point Magoo. What were you doing exactly at Point Magoo? I was what they call a labor management relations specialist. I was involved oh my with... God. Yeah, I was involved with dealing with the unions... Oh, no. uh, and and doing stuff like yeah. that. It was it was quite interesting. Anybody, I went back, uh, and they 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 didn't do it. I don't think out of the goodness of their heart, they required by law to hold the job for right. me because I was in the military. So I went back, and, and and you went into the army. Yeah, had a navy job. Yeah, I <sighs> didn't. I didn't mention that. <laughs> well, we, we couldn't talk about anything. Any, no, you know. 
And I don't know about you, but I mean, you know, people hear about the environment Vietnam veterans returned to in 1968, 69. Oh, yeah. It was hostile. I mean, the only, I mean, I never, I mean, you hear stories of people spitting on you and all that kind of stuff of people. And I, I don't, don't want to say it didn't happen. It didn't happen to me. But the one thing that did happen is I processed out at Oakland. And so I, Ooh. you know, I'd gone to school in the Bay Area at St. Yeah. Mary's, and so I knew it well. And so I went back over to San Francisco side, and I wanted to celebrate. And I, but all I had was a uniform, my beret and a uniform on, and I wanted to go to the top of the mark to have a drink and and look out over the city. And I thought, yeah, yeah, this is this would be neat. And so I do, and I get into the helicopter. I mean, helicopter. I get into the uh, <laughs> elevator. And, you know, we start up, there's another young couple in there, and the look they gave me, they didn't say anything, you know, and they didn't really treat me badly, but I mean, you could tell that I was, as far as they were concerned, about as low as you could get. Lower than snail snot. Yeah, and I get to the top, and the maitre d' of the guy, they says, you can't come in. Will. Yeah. yeah, I said, no, I'm sorry, won't let you in. So, I had to turn around and go back down again. And it was, yeah, I wasn't, I was disappointed, but I wasn't heartbroken, you know. Yeah, yeah. That. So I went home and um, took up that job, and I. But I, at that point, I was kind of restless, and there was still more I wanted to do. So I quit the job, and returned to Europe, and uh, hitchhiked around. I hitchhiked it from Paris to Tangier. And to I, Tangier. Yeah, Tangier, and a, and a famous two weeks lost of my life that I, that I cannot recount to this day. Nor but, do you want to, maybe. I don't. Well, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe it maybe it's something I really like to remember. I don't know, but no. And then uh, yeah, and then the rest of my life has been that kind of a thing. I've I've given up a number of very good jobs that would have been career jobs because. Okay, you know, well, you you got to allow me to return to this excellent book on the ground. Please do. Because there's that little portion in there where we talked about. There's a couple of things I always found really fascinating about you, that uh, you know. At some point, you became the owner's representative and port captain in Daman. 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 Thank you, Saudi Arabia. Right. For the American steamship company Pacific East Far, Far East, East Lines. PFU, yeah. And then for fifteen years, you managed the U.S. Air Force's aerial port at Ramstein, Germany. Ramstein, Germany. That too. Yeah. Just tell us a little bit about. It. I mean, those jobs. I mean. In, in Germany, and then you're in Saudi Arabia? And Please, Saudi, yeah. just a little bit. This is yeah. Well, I said I'd gone to St. Mary's College, and right. uh, <clears throat> one of the people that I, in fact, roomed with for a while was uh, John Aliotto, whose father, Joe Aliotto Sr., was the mayor of San Francisco. <laughs> and, uh, and at some point, I, I, got, a, I got a job at the Alameda Naval Air Station, again in labor management relations, and I was working there. And Joe Aliotto Sr. bought a steamship company for his son. Oh, how nice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Pacific Far East Lines, one of the oldest steamship companies in the United States, American flag steamship. It was an American flag company. And they operated off of the Pacific coast into, um, into the Pacific. And they had, passed, they had the last two passenger vessels, the Monterey and the Mariposa. And they operated up to Alaska and took uh, people to Hawaii and things like that. Uh, the cargo operations went to Australia, New Zealand, uh, Japan, places like that. And so it was really a Far Eastern operation. Uh, but this is, this is in the early 70s. 
and Saudi, they, Saudi Arabia was just booming. You know, we had the first oil embargo, remember? Oh, of course. And they, and they were rolling in money. And they were, you were there a part of all that. Yeah, they, they, oh, were, wow. they, they were rolling in money, and they were, wanting, they were spending it like there was no tomorrow. And so there was an awful lot of uh, stuff being hauled to Saudi Arabia. So John Aliota, and oh, well, what happened was, I'm, I'm at, I skipped over this. I'm at Alameda Naval Air Station when I get a call from John Aliota saying, How'd you like to be working a steamship company? And I said, John, I know nothing about steamships. He says, Nor do I. <laughs> he was a he was a poet and failed play, play, uh, playwright. He'd written this play called The Black Mass, and his father had arranged to have it enacted, put on, or whatever you want to call it, in San Francisco, and it was an abysmal failure. So that I mean that that's the love, that's the guy that's now running. A shipping company. Yeah, president of Pacific Far East Lines. So he says, you know, yeah. He says, well, I don't know. Come on over and let's do it. I said, okay. So I quit the job that I had in Alameda and crossed over the bay to the other side and went to work for PFEL, not knowing anything. So they they put me through kind of a break. This sounds just like your SF career. Yeah, they, they put me through this kind of introductory <laughs> program of what it was, what it meant to be a in the steamship. You know, the front end is called the bow. You know, the back end is called the stern. You know. Which one's the port? I always get that. Yeah. Port's the left side. Port and starboard. Starboard, there you uh, go. Baft the beam and all these things, you know, that you got to know. And um, and not to mention bulkheads. Bulkheads. <sighs> got to know those. That's the one that throws me off. Yeah. Yeah. The Navy talk. Yeah, anyway. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I'm, I'm going along learning the ropes when suddenly I get again and get this call from the head office. You know. <laughs> And which is really just down the hall from yeah, where yeah. I was. And John says, how'd you like to be the port captain in Dhamam, Saudi Arabia, owner's representative? I, <laughs> I had no idea what that meant. <laughs> yeah. Could I, you interpret that? Put that in English? Yeah. Like, what does that mean? He's, they, I knew that the company had invested in two new vessels uh-huh. uh, to run out of Baltimore through the Suez Canal to Saudi Arabia. Uh, the Gulf Bear and the, the Atlantic Bear, I think they were called. Yeah, they were, they were roll-on, roll-off ships. And so I knew we'd, we'd, we were into this venture, and I'd heard that it was going well because it was a good market. Um, but I didn't really know that much about it. And so anyway, yeah, then I was put on an airplane and flown to Saudi Arabia and um, put in charge of you know representing the company. There. We, had yeah. a, we had an actual agent there who did a lot of the work. But at that time, the headquarters for that operation, that was the Middle East Gulf operations, was in Tehran. I, and, and really? That, yeah, the Shah was still in. in sure. So I, I went to Tehran a number of times. I worked ships out of Kuwait, Abu Dhabi, uh, Dubai, Bandar Abbas, Bandar Shapur. So when places. you say you worked the ship, does it mean you helped get the ship into port, unloaded, get it unloaded, or get it loaded? Or what does that mean? I mean... <laughs> Mostly it meant that I stood around and looked like I knew what I was doing. Oh, you had a clipboard? And you, yeah, you, you think, more, okay. more, more or less like that. No, I mean, <laughs> no, they would, uh, on roll-on, roll-off ships, those are ships that you can drive the cargo onto. Okay. You know, either... either They're really big boats. Oh, yeah. And they look like <laughs> aircraft carriers. Really did. When they went to the no Suez kidding. Canal, they sometimes yeah. got challenged for being aircraft carriers, but they weren't. Um but they would have bulldozers and they would have track hose and they would have all kinds of big heavy equipment on them, dump trucks and stuff like that. Yeah. Plus uh, uh, containers that were on the chassis that w- would be taken off and put back on again. Um, and we we would fly over a crew of four drivers who would do that. 
But no, essentially, I, I was the liaison between the the captain of the ship who never came off the ship. Yeah. And the agent and whatever was going on there. And uh, yeah. But some, you know, some really... Uh, so for how many years? Oh, just for a year. And then to Germany? No. Oh, no. It took a while to do that. <laughs> It took a while. No, but you know, some really remarkable things happened while I was there. The biggest one was that uh, we had another kind of ship called a lash ship, which was lighter aboard ship. And what it had, it had these huge barges and had a 500-ton traveling crane that would, that would travel the length of the ship. The ships were 900 feet long. And it, it would go out. It had some rails that ran out over the transom, which is another name for the... The rear, uh, and it would it could pick up these barges, and they were stacked on yeah. board. And the concept was that the vessel would lie off at a distance, and you know, if the waters were too shallow, stuff would go on the barges, and tugs would take them in. Well, one of the ships came in. It was the uh, Pacific Bear, came in, and he lost steerage. Something happened, and he he really he, he it wasn't it wasn't steerage he lost. He he. He couldn't reverse his engines and so couldn't really effectively stop. And one of those vessels probably takes a mile, you know, to stop once they decide they're going to. Um, and so we had to do something about that. So I had to hire a tug to go out to help maneuver the, the vessel where it needed to be. And in the process, uh, the tug was uh, capsized and uh, life was lost. Uh, and uh, the Saudis immediately impounded the ship, which meant it couldn't sail. Uh, and the cost of those ships was calculated to be two thousand dollars an hour. Uh, an hour. Hour. And so this is nineteen seventy-one or two. Yeah. Whoa. And so there we were, uh, you know. And um, that was a really something. In fact, two. I think it was two years later when I was no, it was longer than that it was maybe i don't know it was quite a bit later because i was in germany when they finally had the trial in san francisco to assess blame because the, the pfeo was sued for negligence um and uh, they flew me back from germany to testify in the trial but yeah no kidding yeah whoa and so then on to germany what took you a while to get there no because then i then i did nothing in in San Francisco for a while. I'm very good at doing nothing. <laughs> and my my future wife, Marlo, was Indeed. there in San Francisco with me. And she's a librarian. And uh, she finally decided that she wanted... wanted I, we weren't married. She decided that she wanted to leave San Francisco at the time had come. She'd been there five years. So she was offered the job of librarian at um, in Spokane, Washington at... Uh, at Fairchild Air Force Base, which is a cargo operation for the... And then it was called the Military Airlift Command. So I went up there and again was doing nothing. I was a kept man. <laughs> Marlowe was, you know, and so we were there for a year. We got married there, and we were there for a year and a half, two years. And so she applied for a job in Germany as a librarian, and she got the job. And so... Um, she went to Germany, and because I was her dependent. Indeed. And so she had to go without me until she found a place for us to live, and then I could fly and join her as if, you know, and I did. Um, and I took the first job I could get was uh, the title, the literal title was WG2 Laborer. Laborer. Uh -huh. 
And um, manual labor, I picked things up and put them down. <laughs> and, and I worked in the aerial port. Just like an eldest son mission. Yeah, it was just similar. And in <laughs> the cargo operation for the 608th Aerial Port Squadron. And after six months, I think it was, I was promoted to a forklift driver. This was a big day in my life. Indeed. Yeah, and I got to climb on a forklift. Did you get a little training FOB1 with our forklift there? No. No? no. Okay. Anyway, I climbed aboard Lift the forklift. Lift the beard. Never mind. Climbed aboard the forklift and went to work. Yeah. And then the really bizarre thing happened because... <laughs> Another bizarre thing. Okay, I'm Because <laughs> the military LF command decided that the squadron operations officer, well, at that time he was called the air terminal manager, was a lieutenant colonel's position. But though, like in the military, they rotated out every two years or so. They would be okay, a new right. one. So sure. they saw that there was lost continuity, that there was certain things about the operation that the, you know, that the incoming oper, uh, aerial ter, air terminal manager would not know. Right. And so they needed some form of continuity. So they decided they would have a civilian assistant uh, air terminal manager. Uh, of, of almost the equivalent rank. It was my the rank was the equivalent of major, but it was a civil service position, and so I decided that I was going to apply for this job. You know, but the certainly civil service regulations were that in order for me to apply for the job, I had to quit. <laughs> that you somehow couldn't move from what the the, the laboring people were in, were in a wage structure called wage wage grade structure WG. Yeah, yeah. I was a WG two, whereas the other position I'm going to is the GS, which everybody hears about the GS kind of that portion of the system. Yeah, yeah. and you couldn't move from one to the other while you were employed in the lower. One. I don't know. That's what I was told. So I had to quit with no guarantee I was going to be hired. Hired, and they, uh, I was told that they advertised the job, and they had thirty-two applicants from as far as way to Japan. Because uh, but none a, of them had philosophy degrees. That's right. That was it. <sighs> that was it. <laughs> so I got selected uh, for the job. Really? And I, I'd been working with these guys. Yeah, I, I started with them as a W as a laborer. Sure. Wound up being a forklift driver. You know, and there were sixty in, in the aerial port squadron. There were. Uh, uh, 60 non-U.S. Uh, non personnel, and they were Germans, Italians, oh, wow. British, Turkish, Greek, all kinds of people mixed. That was one set of the workforce. The other was Americans, and there were 15 or 20 of those who knew me as a fellow worker. So they saw me leave as... They didn't know why I left. They just saw me leave one day, and then I come back as the boss. With a new hat. Yeah, so I went from I went from janitor to executive vice president, <laughs> you know, and they they really didn't know what to deal with that, how to deal with that. So that yeah. Oh, I love it. That got me that. Indeed. So how many years then? Fifteen. <laughs> Fifteen. And I finally, finally, I, I for the last of it, I was actually the by that time they changed the title to squadron operations officer, and I was the squadron operations. I was the first and I think only uh, civilian to hold that position as wow, a civilian. Okay. Yeah. Well, sir, uh, looks like we're getting pretty close to two hours here. Uh, I told you we'd go quick. Amazing. And uh, as we get close to this point, I know you got to get back to Dresden to your sweetheart. Is there any uh, final closing uh, thoughts that you'd like to close out with as we uh, come to the end here, John? Well, I mean, it, 
expressed the obvious sense of having been, had a fortunate and blessed life. I mean, not only having lasted at this point, but to along the way to accumulate wonderful friends like yourself and the others that that are a part of this, that are tremendously admirable men, and you've interviewed some of them. Indeed. Uh, and just great men. And I also want a, a special thanks to you, because I think... It's through your efforts more than any other that I can think of off the top of my head that SOG, that the SOG stories have been told and told so well and that they've, it's gained the kind of uh, notice and notoriety, if you will, that it has. You know, you've really made something of us. You've made us especially proud. Well, and that's been done thanks to Jocko. Well, yeah, he, podcast, well, he contributed, but I mean, you, wrote, you, wrote the, you wrote Across the Fence. Indeed. And we, together we wrote On the Ground. But Which I mean, is much better written, my critics have told me. Thanks um, to you, sir. No, but I mean, <laughs> you know, don't, don't, you know, don't play this down. You've, had, you've been a remarkably positive oh, thank element you. In, in all of our lives. And so thank you very much. Thank you to whatever gods may be for having me here. And Indeed. To my lovely wife, who we just celebrated our forty-third wedding anniversary last Sunday. And you've known her for how many years? Fifty. We're good. August of this year. It'll be fifty years. It took, so. took you seven years to wise up and get the pop the big question. Yeah, <laughs> I love her. But you did it. You she's, do a, indeed. she's a wonderful woman. I love her. She is. Well, okay. we'll close on that good note. And uh, um, <clears throat> as we close out, I want to thank all of our veterans out there, including men like John Peters, who have fought for the ideals of our country truly one of our American heroes. To those of you out there on the front lines now, we thank you for fighting for all that are part of our ideals. We want to thank the police also, law enforcement, border patrol, secret service, paramedics, dispatchers, corrections officers, and of course, all of our service members, whether you serve in the Army, Navy, Marine Corps, Air Force, Coast Guard, or now the Space Force. And with that, we thank you all again, and uh, thank Jocko for making these SOGcasts possible very much. And for those of you who, uh, and for those of you who couldn't come home, the stories that have not yet been told, we we render a final salute, and we'll end on that note. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.